never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan F. Today is a fantastic day because I have got a guest here who has, like me, gone through tremendous challenges in his life. And like me, he thought that really the answer might lie just in that one bottle of vodka, but we just don't know which one it is. So we go through all of them, through the whole shop, through the whole bloody barrel, the, the whole factory. And damn, damn, I could never find that freaking bottle. And I think I think Clinton is exactly in the same boat. <laughs> I've got Clinton die with me here. He is a four times combat veteran. Um, he has been through some dark times and is with me now to explore ways that maybe we can show by telling our story um show others that there is hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel that there's light at all because sometimes when we enter darkness we don't see it so clinton welcome to my show my man hey thank you yeah you hit the nail on the head um boy we look back at my life and where it started. So um, we'll just cut right into it for the audience here. So I started my journey in PTSD by witnessing my mother shoot my father in a, in a domestic violence um, interchange exchange between the two of them when I was about five years old. Carry that forward in my life. You know, that's unmanaged trauma. There's no therapy. That that wasn't a thing that that happened you know, three decades ago, over three decades ago, when I was a young child, mm. just just wasn't common. I think now it's a little bit different in modern times. Push through, um, you know, drugs, alcohol, violence in the household was common practice, you know, uh, crime, etc. I grew up extremely poor, uh, paint a picture as my mother was a bartender, my father was a plumber. Oftentimes, there wasn't power on in the house, cold, uh, we'd go without food sometimes, you know, dad's out trying to get his next taste. And then, you know, mom's just doing the best she can to to hold it together, you know, raising a, a young child as a late night bartender. So I'd come home at five and six and seven, and there would be no one in the house, right? She wouldn't get home till one, two in the morning. So here I am five, six, seven, no dad, mom's not there. And I'm taking care of myself, get myself home, feed myself all that stuff, I was so scared I'd fall asleep on the couch, right? Just scared of everything that moved, you know, just we didn't live in a good neighborhood. Mm. So that kind of pushed me into the self-hardening phase of life. As a teenager, I think I had my first drink when I was 12. Uh, like once again, these things were around the house all the time. Um, I'm fortunate it was just that. And then we started smoking weed. Right. We started getting into trouble. I was a little bit smart and cheeky. So I figured out how to scheme and, and maneuver and not get caught. Um, and it became a game of life. Eventually, eventually those things started to catch up with me. Um, I decided uh, I had a baby on the way at 19 years old. I needed to fix my life. The direction I was going was Clinton, go ahead. Go, go one, one step back. What did the alcohol do to you? What what feeling did it give you when you drank okay. your, your drink as a teenager? So as a teenager, it was just a way to manage, 
you know, all the, the, the trauma from early childhood. It was a way out. It took me to a new place. I didn't have to deal with my problems in life. Um, I was smart enough to get through school. I used to just calculate the number of answers that I had to do. And those would all <laughs> the ones that I answered say, I'm not doing oh, anymore. Come on. <laughs> I'm serious. I would still pass. Um, our friends, I, I don't know if the audience is aware of a drug called Ruhifenol, but before, long before it was a date rape drug, we okay. used to split a half of it in high school, give each other half of the date rape drug, right? Because my, fr my friends and I knew that, you know, you would be, it would yeah. be like being drunk, but you wouldn't smell like anything. Okay. So we'd be intoxicated in school, like every single day, almost mm. um, self-medicating to deal with all the, the things from childhood. Mm. So that was it. It was just my escape from breathing day-to-day -day life. I couldn't, both, I couldn't uh, manage. Both of these things are very powerful. Rohypnol wipes out your memories. Um, and it is so relaxing. Suddenly all these worries go away. And that was the same with me, with alcohol, in all fairness. Uh, whatever the tension was in my life, give me two glasses of wine or beer or whatever it is. And suddenly you feel that warmth going through your center and your muscles relax up here. And there was the sound effect. Oh, that was really what, what alcohol was. Fuck, I, I get it. Goosebumps. Just actually <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> Me, See, too. That's, uh, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So did you get this kind of really physical, oh, yes, finally, I'm out of the pain? So for me, my my chemical at this time in my life, my chemical of choice was marijuana, right. uh, cocaine, and other other prescription drugs, mostly depressants. Mm. Um, the cocaine obviously isn't a depressant. We started this pretty young, right? And this this um this outlet, the only way I could describe it for the audience is the noise of life in a center in a sitter a city center. Just the cars zooming around, the puddles, the people, the yelling, the honking, just the noise and vibration of the city, just all that negative, grindy mm. energy of the inner city. Mm. When I would do drugs, it would go from that to what I would presume would be the peace in space, right, where there's no sound, just just silence. And at that, that moment, I was... If I myself was at peace, there was no other world, there was no noise, there was no people, I was just in my own time and space in my own head. And that's how I used drugs in my teenage years. Exactly. I mean, and, and this is such a powerful release. And then we we wonder how later on we fall back onto the same powerful, nearly magical uh, relief of tension, of, of pain. And it's no surprise. Let me guess, uh, psychology or self-help books or, or anything like that, mentors, that was non-existent in your life? Oh, no, there was very few positive role models. Eventually, my father um, got himself clean. I ended up living with him uh, through my teenage years, he was un entire. I, I hope he was un entirely unaware of my self-medicating um, <laughs> trends. Yeah. I was I was pretty slick, so I, I mean, I would never come home smelling like anything. Okay. And um, he just kind of let me do my own thing. But he was a hard man. My dad was very firm. He was a recovering drug addict. You know, hard drugs, uh, heroin, um, alcohol, etc. So you know, he was a, a guy that was raised during Vietnam, you know, a 60s hippie kid. 
he he was a hard guy. My dad was just very firm. He was up at 5 a.m. He believed in hard work all day. And then, you know, Saturday and Sundays, we were up early. So, so if I had a role model that was positive in that regards, once my father cleaned himself up, he showed me some very masculine traits when it, it came to young adulthood, which was hard work. So even though I was doing bad things, our ethos in the house, if you will, is men get up early, men do the work, and they go to bed late. <laughs> and that that was just kind of the life. So I, I started hustling at a young age, washing cars in a neighborhood, mowing lawns. Right. I think I bought, I bought my first motorcycle at 15, my second one at 15 and a half, got myself to the auto auto body dealership there. I was like, how in the fuck am I going to get a car so this guy can get laid, right? I need a cool car. I don't have any money. So I, I went over there and started hustling, uh, painting cars at 15 and 16 eventually it was corvettes uh, right so I, I was a kid in high school i think i owned four cars before i graduated high school legit cars excellent. you know with the paint and the wheels i had a restored corvette 76 that i had put piece together so hard work although we were self-medicating to get through a lot of our emotional issues we were dealing with um hard work was never a stranger to me it was just kind of part of life. So that was really my high school years. So my dad started that and what he instilled in me was hard work. Um, it's, it's unfortunate he's not here today to see it. But when we transition into my military tours here shortly, uh, I was exposed to an entirely new level of hard work. It, hmm. it went from uh, mowing lawns playing with my friends and getting high all the time to uh, dropping bombs on humans and, you know, doing what we can to save lives, American lives and, and coalition troops and, uh, you know, wage war against the enemy. And what made you, what made you go towards the military? Um, when was that? Which time? So I enlisted in the, the Marine Corps when I was 19 years old and I did that three weeks after I found out uh, the girl I was dating was pregnant. Right. So right, right before, right before I enlisted, we got married and then I went right into the military just a few weeks later. What triggered right, so, it? Which year was that? This was 1999. So the, that was the trigger I needed. I needed to, um, you know, change my ways. I didn't have a, a solid enough foundation internally to self-correct. And uh, that was the hardest service with the most discipline um, was kind of in line. I was a pretty physical guy, not afraid of hard work. My dad was a yeller to begin with. So it didn't much matter. Hmm. So we enlisted in the military and off we were 1999. So it was boot camp, and I was getting yelled at entirely new people. And these ones were all scary And then, um, you know, the training, et cetera. And this is where I learned the fine art. I'm talking the finest of artismal, extravagant drinking in the Marine Corps. What we call competitive uh, fraternity style drinking day in, day out as a culture. Yeah. <laughs> and that that is the truth. And that's what we did to, to you know, basically once again, self-medicate. You know, they don't treat... Uh, people in the Marine Corps, at least at this time, very nicely. It's a rough life. 
you know, you're, you're told what to do. Someone's, you know, tracking you down all the time. You have discipline and, and there's expectations and uh, lots of training and, and good times. You know, it's a, it's a fraternity with high work ethic, I believe, but uh, they are under a lot of stress for young kids. There's not very, very reasonable outlets. And uh, we all turn to alcohol as, as a culture. So they would have parties in the barracks almost every night. And, you know, the married people would have, you know, large parties um, off base every weekend, you know, multiple parties. So here we are day in, day out, 19 through 24, 25, you know, fairly intoxicated regularly, you know, several times a week at a minimum. And this isn't have, you know, a sip of brandy with, you know, a, a digestive with, <laughs> with your steak. It's not that kind of drinking. They were specifically playing drinking games to see if we could alter reality and see who passed out first. You know, that was that kind of fun. Okay. <laughs> and this was long before combat. So we were, we were sharpening our knives, if you will, and our skill of competitive drinking. Obviously, you can't do the drugs in the in the military. So I was cleaned up from from those things. The second I decided to enlist, I didn't touch a uh, another substance until I was long out of the military. Well, in all fairness, you didn't have to. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't have to. Yeah, my my state was altered all the time. We were either lifting weights, running around, or training. Exactly. And then in our free time, we were drinking. So we all looked great. Exactly. Uh, but we were dying on the inside. Oh god! But but that time you were a young dad. How did that go down? I was a young dad. That's right. Well, we did it responsibly. You know, mm -hmm. my um, wife at the time, she wasn't a big drinker. Actually, right. she didn't drink. I think I only remember her drinking once or twice right. that I recall in all of our marriage or 17 years of marriage. So she was a pretty, pretty responsible mother. Um, I was definitely the irresponsible one in the family. <laughs> that's for sure. It is yeah. what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. So... So in our household, you know, minus all the hyper male aggression, you know, from from my work and just kind of it's hard to put on one uniform and then come home and leave it, leave it at work. Right. That's not the way my personality really works. So it takes a lot of work to switch gears. And, um, you know, in 2000, you know, 9-11 happened, you know, shortly after 9-11, you know, we're we're off supporting the Afghanistan invasion. Uh, dropping bombs on troops, uh, the Taliban day in, day out. You know, these are long days. So 15, 17-hour days, common seven days a week, you know, six to 10 months at a time. That was my first tour. I remember getting on the radio as I, I was one of the youngest, I think I was the youngest controller in the war in the Marine Corps. I, I can't remember my age. It's September 11, but I don't think I was maybe barely old enough to drink and five minutes into the war you know the satellite radio goes off and there's uh navy seals they're pinned down they're in a gunfight and i'm hearing the the firefight over the radio they're like we need air support and you know and you just hear the machine guns going off in the background right five seconds into the into the war that was that was my job Right. So I'm looking and there's there's no aircraft available. Right. And this is Afghanistan. It's mountains. A lot of the stuff is over satellite. We don't have direct line of sight easily, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I'm trying to find aircraft to support these guys. And like the nearest, the nearest AC 130 gunship is 45 minutes away, man. He's like, 
we're going to be fucking dead in 10 minutes. Mm. Right. So we're working, working the list and there's a, a B2 bomber that was close, uh, a fully loaded with weapons. You know, we pushed that bomber over top and they, they leveled the building in Kandahar city and, you know, the Navy SEALs, you know, they, they got out, they got their wounded out of there and, and everybody lived, but that was five minutes into that war. And I was 22 years old, you know, just one year later, year and some change later, we end up um, in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, mm. you know, and it's quite, quite a different tempo in that war. That's a full invasion. Um, I'm on the ground attached to the Marine division and the early warning control, same, same sort of thing. You know, we leapfrog forward into the country, you know, all caravan, all ground movement. There's engagements and attacks, and we're systematically clearing the enemy tanks, troops uh, with aircraft. And and this tempo was actually quite a bit higher. So it was a lot more infrastructure in and around Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and all the surrounding uh, countries. Mm. You know, the naval fleet's really close. So we're launching uh, a significant attacks against the Iraqis at this time. I remember having anywhere from 10 to 20 aircraft under my control at one time. And we are just assigning targets all day long, burning up radios. I mean, I talked for 12, 15 hours straight, like just unkey the mic, key back on the mic, assign aircraft to target, get battle damage assessment, roll him off. He's he's going home because he's out of weapons, next aircraft up all day long, just uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Taliban, suspected Taliban leaders, provincial mayors, you know, infrastructure, troops, troops and troops and um, bedded down, you know, troops in the open tanks. It doesn't matter all day long, every day. So that was that was my version of that war. How now, long did that, you get? How long was the deployment? Uh, the, the first deployment in Iraq was uh, just under six months. It was right around five months for us. So with we that did our kind business. Of, yeah, with that kind of pace, though, man, this is cortisol, adrenaline going, going, going. And we know that really you burn out at a rate. It's no longer funny. Um, so it is, I mean, how? so you were basically a forward air controller. You were responsible. You couldn't just switch off. But there would have been times when you a need to sleep. So what was were you what two hours on, two hours off, or were you was it really fifteen hours straight and then crash, or how did it work? No. So for us um, in our attachment, I was not a forward control. It's a little bit yeah. different. I'm an early warning control. So we have a a radar system, uh, some tactical data links that feed us information yeah. off the secure side, right. and we had a attachment of about twelve people. So right. attachment of the radar uh, systems folks and the maintainers and then a tactical control shelter all mobile all on all vehicles so we had two controllers so we were doing 12 13 hour shifts between each other right and then i would manage the crew so i had enough technical experience i would actually manage the crew the surveillance the traffic the weapons everything so that's how we rotated back and forth there was nowhere to go so we Mm -hmm. would do basically calisthenics you know with our equipment on things like that to get extra weight you know sandbags Mm -hmm. things like that so when we were off shift or 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 not overflowing into you know there are times most of the most of the war happens on basically a clock cycle Mm -hmm. if you will troops don't don't invade and continue to work 24 7 either right so there's hours of engagement with different units you know on, on the the u.s's uh, 
power cycles, right? Yeah. So periods of darkness, we do a lot of attacking, you know, early in the morning is kind of low tempo and, and throughout the heat of the day. It just depends on where we are in the war. So these were pretty intense days, mm. right? So there is no burning out. You, there, so it's it's not, interesting. Not when you're there. Not when you're there. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you're right. But thereafter, the not in the moment. You're doing everything you can to save lives. You know, exactly. I think the the worst night of my life that I, that I ever recall was that one of the first battles, a highly restrictive ROE. I believe the city was on Nazaria. You know, we're invading and uh, the Marine Corps division is halted by the, the Iraqi uh, army military. We can't cross the river to take more ground because the ROE was very restrictive. So they had they didn't have uniforms on They're wearing suits. They were using cell phones to call in artillery mm. on the Marine troops. You know, here I am, the guy that's supposed to be assigning aircraft and targeting out these people. And I'm just listening the whole time, you know, medevacs going off. And the troops are getting nailed um, because the ROE was restrictive. They couldn't attack uh, the Iraqi forces because they weren't in uniform. It was not clear and they were unarmed, right? So they would call in mm. artillery fire. They're using men and women as or women, children as body shields, moving between buildings. Uh, they're very slick in the first 24 hours until they relaxed ROE. And that one night we lost 22 Marines. Right. And just that one battle was the, the bloodiest battle of the war. They loosened the ROE in the morning and then it was it was all she wrote. Once they loosened the ROE, the Marine Corps was across that bridge, I think, in under 12 minutes. Mm. Right. And they were just, you know, waging war against the enemy. Mm. So. So, you know, you can endure a lot when it's not about you. Right? Oh, when you're trying awesome. to when Absolutely. you're trying to live. And save other people. Shit, yeah. uh, you'd be surprised what you can do. Oh, hell yes, absolutely. We When I was a young uh, doctor, we did often 24 hours on, 24 hours off, or 72 hours, basically weekends. And that was absolutely acceptable at that time. Um, please, uh, if you if you actually look at, if you do studies and compare your, your mistake rate after, let's say, 16 hours nonstop flat out work, you're about as good as if you had a bottle of wine. And if you go to 24 uh, hours nonstop, you're, you know, you're heading into that zone uh, where sort of you really either are very well trained and things still happen all right or the mistakes go up dramatically. Sure. And that is just that is just fact. Um, right. So therefore, I know what I'm talking about uh, in, and you know what you're talking about. So we both agree that there is 100 percent when you're under adrenaline, under cortisone, you're out there, you, you kick ass. Right. But at some stage, you have to come off. At some stage, yeah. you sorry, that right cannot go on endlessly. Right. <laughs> so, how did you guys decompress after uh, after uh, leaving leaving back home? Well, once we landed back on these shores, um, you know, a lot of people had issues. Right? They still have issues. The ones that are still alive today have issues. So you carry those wounds. They never. I don't believe they actually ever really heal. You either just forget that they're there, and occasionally, you know, you run across you know that scar in your life. So once we returned, uh, the drinking returned, right? So to make that pain go away, you're talking, you know. I don't even have a number, billions in, in assets and buildings, infrastructure, and, you know, I wouldn't even want to put a number to the amount of lives, you know, even if, 
even if you're not the person doing it, you're definitely an accessory to murder, right? And in this country, they put you away for life after one or two, mm. right? So automatically in another country, they call you a hero, <laughs> right? So you have to you have to carry that forward. I mean, the number, it would be shocking. I don't even want to think about it, right? More grains of sand, you know, in the ocean kind of thing. It's just a big number of people that would have been hurt from our actions over there. So, so you have to deal with that emotionally at some point, right? You hurt a lot of people, you damaged a lot of equipment, infrastructure, their country has not been better, has not been the same since, mm-hmm. you know, we put them back, you know, several decades, maybe four, mm-hmm. you know, so just the amount of suffering post-war and the entire region, not just there, you know, has a toll on you. You could either just say, I don't care, or you have some type of a conscience and you have to kind of deal with that some way. So how I would do that is self-medication with alcohol, right? And that carried forward. As I got older, the drinking got actually worse because that that unresolved uh, PTSD, the unresolved emotional trauma just kind of builds up over time. And, mm-hmm. and it's one sip of alcohol once a week, right? When you're not feeling your best and it's, then it's two. And then before you know it, it's a glass mm-hmm. and then it's a gl- couple glasses a day. And then it's multiple times a day. It starts to be, uh, just a systematic erosion of who you are, that, mm-hmm. that vice, like all vices eventually uh, take over who you are. If you're not careful, you can lose who you are. Yeah. Um, powerful words. I, I didn't expect you to go actually into the moral uh, injury that so many, many soldiers are coming home with. Um, I love to hear that from you, man. Um, but here you are, you've got the, the, the real sort of hardcore PTSD that, that we would uh, maybe be familiar with that sounds stupid um many people accept it that when a soldier does something on the battlefield his best friend gets blown up yeah sure ptsd um we keep forgetting right. that there are so many other forms of uh of trauma that can cause the same response the same follow-on uh effects on your body the same the same signs and symptoms and that sure. is what we sort of called it the complex PTSD. And that is only something that is really more in the, in recent years, maybe the last two decades has come out uh, and only now becoming more, more discussed and accepted out there. Having said that, when, when you had your, when you had to watch your, uh, your mom um, using the, the firearm um, for crying out loud, there was no one would have helped you. Uh, right. When I was uh, when I was attacked by a gang, uh, I no one gave a damn. No one gave came to my help. Um, so I was sitting bleeding in in our tram, uh, riding to the to the hospital myself, and uh, no one. People just looked the other way, and that taught me already. I can't rely on anyone else but myself, and right. that I think just sitting in that tram bleeding. Um, that that was all I needed, and and I think here you were. You had this self reliance been been put onto you at a very young age. You became this kind of self reliant hustler, and then you know that cool dude who actually looks after himself. 
and right. then goes into the Marine. Now you become the kick-ass guy who is, is there and and uh, getting reinforced in that personality. Now you're, right. you're the hero in the war and you come home and there's your wife saying, oh, my God, oh, the little child is crying and my mortgage and can you help me with the lawns and you're never around when I need you. How did you deal with that? Uh, so when you move um, from high stress combat zones or or any type of high stress work, it doesn't matter. And I and I referred to the two gears of life, right? You have your intense gear, right, where you're grinding and and doing amazing things, and then you come home and you have to switch into that softer, gentler, um, normal life gear if you will so basically like a split personality scenario yes it is <laughs> truly you, you can't you can't do it and this was long before the military had safeguards to protect the families from the combat troops mm. right because they're not equipped to deal with the stresses of regular life they have different stressors over overseas mm. but when you get back like i couldn't even drive a car Mm. Right. The rate at which the cars approach you was so uncomfortable and abnormal to my brain. I would be going down the road at like 40 miles an hour and traffic's just flying past you at 65. I could not psychologically handle the tempo of the real world after being in combat, which is entirely different set of stressors that my exactly. my mind had adapted to to deal with. It just became normal. The basic things that people in the real world take for granted, I couldn't manage, right? I could not manage uh, a family. I could not manage communicating with my spouse at the time. I could not manage uh, doing normal things and then keeping that warrior spirit bottled up, mm. right? So I'm this like incredible Hulk Tasmanian devil of a creation (laughs) right and it's stuck and i i now have to wear a suit and regular clothes and i feel like the kind of superman's clark kent or bruce banner's incredible hulk like i'm a person stuck between two worlds and neither one of them are getting taken care of appropriately right and i'm suffering right so i have to take care of my family and and i just can't over over time i just can't so Over time, I figured out a way um, after I got out of the military, I picked up defense contracting, right, which landed me right back in Afghanistan and Iraq, Jordan and fire, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, all over (laughs) Kuwait, all over the place. So I ended up back in a very similar role dealing with communications. Now, I wasn't dropping arms on anybody was mostly passive communications for um, a high profile defense asset overseas that flies around on aircraft. But regardless, we worked really long hours and very similar tempo, all almost all military people, a few engineers, or prior military people, I happen to be both. And um, switching between those long tours overseas and coming back home, I struggled the same way. So what I used to do to decompress is I would lie to my significant other and tell her I wouldn't be back for an extra week. And then what I would do is when I got home, I would take a week to myself Good. just so I could manage. So I would get a hotel and Good. and some resort or something like in San Diego, it doesn't matter, kind of, I think Paradise Island or something crazy. And it would literally like be a hut and I would do zero. I would get a book 
I'd wake up on time so I could get onto schedule in this time zone, right? So just like normal, I'd stay up all night, one or two days, and then I'd wake up normally on schedule to kind of get my clock right, if you will. And I'd read most of the time. I would meditate, do yoga, hit the gym, walk on the beach. I would just kind of chill out so that I could acclimatize back to regular life, the food, the people, the pace, I'd walk around the city, just kind of reintegrating back into society so that when I went home, I didn't want to, um, you know, toss my, my wife, you know, over the house because I can't deal with her. Right. Because all they want is their, their husband or, or wife. They just want that person back. Right. And they've been doing it alone themselves. So they need, they want their time back. So second you come back, you know, you're hit with, Hey, I want to, you know, it's your, it's your dish night, your time to cook, like take care of the kids, like all that you're getting hit with the family (laughs) stuff as you should. I don't, Uh, I don't fault her for that whatsoever. That's entirely uh, expected. But once again, I couldn't deal with it. Right. So, so we start the medication, self-medication with alcohol, right? Even, even at those times. So when I say to the audience out there, you know, it's in control of you. I really mean it because these substances, and this is why I'm so rigid to do, to not have them in my life is that they cost me everything, right? They cost me my marriage. They cost me my health. They cost me my mind. And it took so much work of my life to get that gorilla off my back. It it just took, it took a lifetime of work to get that thing out of my, my behavior wagon wheel, if you will. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult because it's so socially acceptable. It's so socially <laughs> acceptable to go out with your friends and have a few drinks, throw some back watch football, American football all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday. There's a couple nights of the week to watch more football and drink. And then it's basketball and then it's baseball and then it's hockey. I mean, our whole society revolves around self-medicating with this poison. And eventually enough was enough. You know, I went through a divorce. Um, I think me and my ex are still really great friends. Uh, We're, we're, there for the children. Uh, but it, it cost me a lot. And I never had, I never needed to go through all those things. And it started to affect my health, you know, every single day waking up drunk or hung over, maybe not drunk, but just off. And it, it really started to take a toll on my physical uh, abilities, you know, mostly later in life. Didn't really affect me much physically in my thirties. Um, surprisingly, but when I started to approach my forties, uh, one drink, I feel like crap for three days. I don't know. Definitely, definitely borderline liver cirrhosis of the liver, something going on. Um, so, you know, what can you do? Oh, uh, shitloads we can do. We're coming to that. We're coming. You and I, you and I know what we can do. Um, I know what I did. I know yeah, what I did. Which is brilliant. I mean, man, wow. Uh, but here's the series of traumas that part of it you chose part of it you didn't choose whatsoever but that is life life throws you lemons and sometimes an avalanche of lemons and it's a shit sandwich like it or lump it trauma is guaranteed in our lives um and like you i didn't have any role models that 
showed me how to deal with that. Um, none whatsoever. No, uh, a, a man is a man who can hold his liquor, number one. Number two, who can bed as many women as physically possible. That's a oh, real man. Right. So that kind of, of role models I had when I was a, a youngster. Right. And it's just, oh, God. So you have got all these screwed core beliefs um, that are then reinforced by our own, yeah, you call it the gorilla on your back. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, where we all get get oh so how shall i say that we find ourselves in a place at one stage in our life where we say what the fuck <laughs> and then the problem is i think i've i i realized that so many times but i didn't have the the power and i didn't have the the guts and balls to actually ask for help right what was the transformation for you when did you or how did you come about admitting that enough is enough, that you were sick and tired of being sick and tired and that you sought help? How did that come about? Yeah, so the situation was during COVID, right? So we hit COVID, locks down all of society on the planet for the most part. Mm. And what do we turn to? Our nah. favorite, our favorite substance, <laughs> right? So I'm working from home. It starts to be, you know, just a sip of wine. You know, at the grocery store, you couldn't get a steak. They sure as fuck had shelves oh, full yeah. of alcohol. Oh yeah, right. And and a good wine that's very cheap to me uh, is called Robert Mondavi. Hate to throw that little plug in there, but they offered a special at the grocery store, six bottles. It was like $8 a bottle and this stuff's usually like 25. I was loading up. I was like, I'll take 12, please. Oh yeah. I like <laughs> I looked at my counter and there was no damn food. It was just alcohol. I know. Hey. I know. Done the same I was, shit. <laughs> I was like pirates lived off that shit. So can I, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'd, I'd crack open that bottle of breakfast. Mm. I would, oh, I'd yeah. pop the bottle, pop the cork have some of that grape juice and I'd start my work day. Mm. You know, I'd have a glass, just sip on it, just sit over there, just, just sit over there, mind your business. And every now and then like, oh, I don't like the way this meeting's going. I have a little sip. <laughs> right. Then at lunch, you have another sip. Right. So this becomes routine, right? I'm dating a girl. It's serious at the time. You know, we're talking about moving in. Um, so these behaviors don't stop. I'm not hitting the gym. I'm focusing on her time so so not paying attention to what's going on in me because i'm the tough guy right i'm managing my workload goes through the fucking roof during covid right they just they're not hiring any people people are quitting um they're working from home so the productivity is quite low and then we're a global organization so we're moving people in and around probably a dozen countries globally so you know how covid is the lockdowns are changing faster than we can possibly keep up yeah. uh, all the rules are unique in every single state or country um we have people in flight get denied access when they land because the rules changed <laughs> mid-flight. Oh, so this kind of shit. So yeah. we're just having this humongous uh, increase in workload and, and really and a reduction in staff, coinciding with a reduction of staff, reduction in funds. Uh, we're just getting crushed, right? Wow. And I'm the I'm the smart guy, right? I'm the guy that's got to figure out how in the fuck do we do more with less and save as many jobs as we can because funding's running out quick. So under a huge amount of stress, no excuse whatsoever, but I turn to the bottom, right? So I'm dating this girl about a year and a half. 
right? We're talking about moving in and next steps. And I was crazy about her, right? She was a good girl. So I go to Saudi Arabia on a trip, right? It's about six, eight weeks, right? And I recall she asked, she was like, hey, when do you think, you know, we'll move in? I was like, I don't really have an answer about, I don't have an answer for that right now, right? And I was playing this game, right? One foot in, one foot out. Like I, I cared for her. I just wouldn't, wouldn't open up and tell her that I was down to do that. Right. And then she was hyper interested in the timeline. You know, she was older, eggs drying up, whatever. I get it. Right. So she's got a schedule. She's like, shit or get off the pot. <laughs> so I leave for Saudi Arabia. It's like an eight week pump. I catch COVID. Right. So I get delayed 10 days, come back home. This bitch moved out of the city. Didn't even say anything. Sends a text. Doesn't even call me. Right. Sends a text. It's like, hey, I'm not in the city anymore. I took a job in San Francisco and I live in San Diego. Uh, she's like, I don't know where we stand. And then just silence. Right. We literally never spoke after that. Right. N not even exchange text. Like she sent me some some text, you know, weeks fucking later. Right. It's like, OK. Right. So breaks my heart. Right. But I deserved it. Right. I wasn't doing the things necessary. Uh -huh. I wasn't living up to my bargain, my end of the deal. Yeah. And I really don't blame her. She took her dream job. I just wish she would have communicated with me and and let me know what she wanted to do. And I would have supported uh -huh. her on her future. Right. I, I'm not that kind of guy like, no, you can't do that. You're going to stay here with me. Like, no, that's your path. And I respect that. Like, I will support you. We were we were always friends right before we were intimate. So. Um, I, if she's, if she ever hears this, that's all I really wished you would have done is just expressed yourself. And we could have, we could have been mature adults about it, but we weren't. So post that, you know, I'm heartbroken, right? Completely heartbroken. It's like the hardest, the hardest heartache that I've had, you know, in a long time, probably since the divorce, right? Getting over someone that you're, you're really, really care about you know, is, is hard for me because I don't actually open up to just anybody. Right. So when I do care about someone, it's, it's kind of all the way, like I would die for my partner kind of care. And most people wouldn't do that when it gets crazy. There's like, Oh, peace. Good luck. Like I'm out. Like, I'll call you tomorrow if you live. Like, if not, Oh, well, <laughs> I'll get another one. I don't really work like that. Like that's my person and I'm, I'm supposed to be selfless for them. So I was going through like a really hard time. Right. And I lived in a big tower in downtown San Diego all by myself with that bottle. Right. So I'm not doing good. I'm putting on weight. I can't go to the gym. I have zero outlets, you know, post COVID. And I run across one of my friends, Eric. Eric drives a Lamborghini. You know, he lives a life. He owns his own business, international shipping business. And he's got a beautiful woman. He's a cool older guy with silver beard. He's, you know, very fit, very handsome kind of guy. He's the guy that I think everybody would want to be most men in the world would want to be that fucking guy. Right. Mm -hmm. I know I did. I was like, God damn this motherfucker. So I was talking to him like, Hey man, I was like, I'm going through it. Like you were talking about, you had this mentor, right. That, that got you squared away and helped you fix your life. I was like, who was that guy? So he, he put me on to a gentleman called, uh, by the name of Wes Watson. So he's a pretty big in the coaching space. Uh, he did 10 years in the penitentiary. He fixed his life through, um, you know, finding his higher purpose. Oh, and then he yeah. pays back to society. He has a, a very specific uh, system and process that he, he, he does every single day 
um, to bring him to his highest, his highest vibration, he calls it, or basically in alignment with the person he most wants to be. Right. Nice. So nice. basically good actions, good results, right? He's all action. Right. So I stumble onto this guy, right. And start following him. Right. I start following other people in the coaching space, Andy Frazella, um, Betros, uh, Ed Milet. You just, just, just go on the list. Top five, 10 in the industry. I start following them. Right. Yeah. I'm starting to realize I'm like, damn, I thought I was, I thought I was killing it. Like I really did. Like, I'm at the high end of the career. I have a master's degree in software engineering, right? Did the military thing, four tours in combat and get any girl that I want for the most part. And I wasn't in very good shape. Um, I have my, a little bit of money in the bank, right? I, I'm living a good life, right? And um, I stumbled into this guy and I just realized I am so far off of my potential. <laughs> so far off. I'm Beautiful. a I'm a I'm like a 75, maybe 85% guy. I was. I mean, top tier for most of society, but there's there's still that last hardest bit to get. So I go kind of all in, right? I stumble around throughout most of the year, kind of trying to cheat my way out of it and not get a mentor, right? Because the ego's in the way. Mm. And I just got tired of it. It's like, you know what? This guy's figured his shit out. He figured it out. Dude went in the prison, came out. He's helping people. He makes millions of dollars a year. Mm. He's hu humongous, all tatted up, right? Beautiful girl, badass cars, lives in the most expensive place in San Diego. I was like, that's the fucking guy I need, right? <laughs> I just need the shortcut mm. to to his process like show show me like i fucked it up enough mm. i need someone that's doing it to show me how to get out of this hole that i've gotten myself in psychologically nice. and that's that's where the change happens right so i i weaponized all that hurt anger that i had from my my life my childhood life and i knew that that man was deficient in so many ways in society. And I needed to spend a lot of time, hours and hours and hours, every single day, trying to master that moment in that day. Through his processes, with all my military background experience, dedication, discipline, hard work, I reignited that, that warrior ethos inside of me. Right. And I applied all those things to just being the best version of person I could possibly be in the moment that day. And I just needed to be a little bit better than yesterday. Mm -hmm. So I don't set large goals in my life. I, I don't focus on the big picture anymore. Right. I have a goal. I know which direction I'm going kind of thing. Like I'm going towards America on the Nina and the Pinta. That's where we're fucking going. We're just looking for land in that direction. Right. So my goal is. I needed to fix myself because I'd been through so much in my life that I owed all of humanity my story. I also owed all of humanity. I owe them still to the day that I stopped breathing. I owe them for all the death and destruction that I caused on the planet. Right. So I, my only payback is I need to be able to help someone that was down in that hole that I was in, that was suffering from PTSD or suffering from trauma or just addicted to substances, right? They're not living up to their highest potential. I owe them my story 
to help them get out of that cycle and to be their best best version of their self mm. through the processes that I learned from Wes Watson, also with my spin on it, right? And my my delivery and energy to to the people in need. So that's where we start the change in this man. And that's beautiful. That's exactly it. And it's so beautiful because you have been so focused on becoming or in, in, in the last 10 minutes, describing how you wanted to become the best version of yourself. You didn't even go anywhere to, to sobriety, to uh, drinking, because ultimately when we actually start focusing and really taking action uh, in the right direction, suddenly that alcohol, which was so powerful in our life, suddenly sort of drops away. And I mean, if you have been hitting the bottle, guys, if you are out there still hitting the bottle, it will take you, it will take you some rough days and weeks and months ahead of you to actually ditch the bitch. Um, but right. it it will happen. It will happen if you get yourself, if you get yourself the right power team together. Um, for yeah. me, I, just, I was so so grateful that I was exposed to a bunch of people um, in, in rehab um, who all had their shit together. And then after a few days and weeks, I realized all of them had been in the same place where I was. Um, sure. They all had been drinking. They all had been using drugs, et cetera. And now they were nurses, yoga instructors, chef, whatever. Everyone who looked after us and guided us was essentially, um, you know, a few years prior sitting in the same chair that I was. And right. I thought, wow, okay. And then, you know, I went to it with the same kind of, of, of attitude you showed here. Yeah, come right. on. I, I have got a discipline. Well, that's I going to be the best recovering addict that I can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I showed him I will go further than anyone has ever gone in four weeks. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how yeah. I took that on. And it worked. I did a lot of shit, lots of work. But then I realized that actually, now what? <laughs> I'm sober. Right. Now what? <laughs> right. And I have to say, fuck, I was an empty shell of a man. I was, I was like an empty painting, um, right. an empty canvas. And it was beautiful. With hindsight, I could try to, to start painting and see what kind of painting I want to do. I could start remodeling myself. The right. problem was I had no clue who I wanted to be um, because I never had asked myself that question. And he, by now right. I was in my mid-40s. So you need someone who can guide you towards that direction. And it's the problem if you, you don't know what you don't know. So right. therefore, you need actually, you you can try to figure it out yourself, okay? You you guys listening out there, you're probably not the, not the dumbest people in this world you all have achieved something the problem is you don't know what you don't know and you have no idea what possibly could help you forward unless you expose yourself unless you sure. talk to people and that is exactly where someone like you clinton comes in so yeah, you instead 100%. of reinventing the wheel um trying like a chimpanzee hitting the keyboard and say oh oh that oh, that's that feels nice let's try that <laughs> that doesn't work it does maybe yeah. you're lucky but no well you know i strongly believe that um the, 
you create teams in which you are the dumbest person. Okay. Because otherwise, if you know it all, then yeah. what does that team give you? No, unless you want it to work for you. And, and But even then, you want better people than yourself. So there you go. Oh, wow, Clinton. I mean, it's... Um, and what are you focusing on? So if someone, so, if someone was yeah. actually now coming to you and actually say, look, fuck it, I've, I've, I've drink far too much. I'm 30 kilogram overweight and I've had it. I've had it. And I, I don't know. I've even want to throw it all away. How would you? Yeah. So absolutely fucking not. We're not going to throw it all away. What you're going to do is you're going to find someone like me, right? And you're going to say you have a problem, right? And you'll do anything to change and be better. And then we start writing a new chapter in your book, right? And what I've determined over, you know, kind of my life is that addiction comes in many forms because we're seeking that dopamine hit, right? So it's either in the form of food, substance, it could be attention, it could be yeah. intimacy, right? Like our definition of, of, of a man, right? The marble man was the cool guy with the cigarette, the beer, right? And, and the hot girl, Right. So we already know how that story goes. He's hitting all the dopamine in one shot. Right. In a in a in a red Corvette driving off the mountain. Right. That's what he's doing. And that's good for him. So in my system, what we do is we find a positive outlet to funnel that dopamine through. Right. You the uh, addictive mind, I I happen to believe, and maybe this isn't scientific, I don't know, but I happen to believe an addictive mind is always addictive. We can't, it is super difficult and rare that we actually change the personality type of addiction. It can be, it can happen, I'm sure, but we're talking shock therapy, right? Uh uh beatings on the regular, like it doesn't happen. So the easiest way to formulate change is to funnel that into something positive, right? right? And a negative it's it's both a negative and positive reinforcement is physical fitness, right? So when you focus, what I find is our addicts are the most dedicated to their physical fitness because they have a new form of what is it? Dopamine, right? So they use physical fitness as both a punishment tool for when they deviate from their 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 daily plan or their purpose, right? They'll do, you know, hundreds of push-ups or burpees or go for a run or go back to the gym, right? Because they're getting that dopamine and they're also reinforcing that that, that behavior sucks. Like maybe I shouldn't have broken character and really wanted to have that drink or something. So now they've self-punished, right? I'm not talking about punching themselves in the face, but they're they're reminding themselves through pain that they probably shouldn't be doing something. And and pain it happens to be one of the best retentions of any any behavior, right? You touch the stove once or twice, you never touch that stove again because you know it's hot, right? So they're sort of inducing a discomfort uh, a discomfort. Uh, scenario in their own life through their behavior. So it's like a self-correcting evolution over time. And they're using the physical fitness and the nutrition to develop discipline, delayed gratification, and now they have a new form of dopamine, right? So now, now they're getting into shape. They're starting to get those six pack abs, develop their confidence. They have this new (laughs) skill set that they can apply everywhere Uh, uh, right because all successful people have the the trait of delayed gratification right and it is quite hard 
to lose 50 pounds or 100 pounds and and get the bot that dream body right male or female it doesn't matter it's not all about the males here it's the girls too right they get a newfound confidence and with those skills they can apply them everywhere that job that they wanted that promotion uh to start the business um bigger and bigger goals all the time because they can sustain the discomfort right they're self-inducing uh a sustained um sustained discomfort over time and they're growing better and better over time so what your standard baseline was a year ago is is laughable today right the man i was just 12 months ago is laughable to me today Mm. and the man i will be in another 12 months will dwarf this man because Mm. i just need to do better today than yesterday right and eventually when you look around you there's no one standing around you you'll be alone at the top of that pyramid that's right right and you have to go out and seek uh better and better and better um company in your life to challenge you right if you're hanging around a bunch of losers right you're going to do loser shit their shit's going to rub off on you even if you're not doing bad stuff you're going to have three of your friends one of them's going to have a a bag of coke in his pocket you're going to get pulled over by the fucking police that dude's going to slide that shit in your seat right they're going to run the dogs through your car and you're going to go to jail while your friend is going to go back home he's going to say it wasn't his right because that's what those kinds of people do right Mm -hmm. so their problems rub off on you so you've got to get away from your social circles kind of isolate and get around positive people like you said when you were in rehab all the people there were killing it all the people that i roll with are fucking killing it Mm -hmm. right they're multi-millionaires make hundreds of millions a, a year they challenged me in ways that I was never exposed to in my life. And it's through being around those types of people that are doing so much better than me. Well, at least in ways that I measure as better, they have their own problems in their life. They're not perfect people, mm-hmm. but these are the things that interest me because it always keeps me moving myself forward. So much of my life, I stagnated, mm-hmm. right? And what happens when I get bored, when I stagnate, mm-hmm. I do dumb shit. Right. I end up in the strip club. Right. I end up drinking. I just do dumb stuff. There's really no rhyme or reason. I'm bored. So I must fill my time with positive Uh, goals and pathways. So I just continue to move forward because regular life actually bores me. It really does. Just uh, uh, coming home after a long day at work, plopping down on the couch, having a cold one, watching some sports with the homies. That shit's what the fuck is that? Yeah. That's not going anywhere. Do that for another 30 fucking years. Are you kidding me? Hell no, man. I would rather work 18 hour days now um, because my, my true calling is helping other people. So it's kind of a selfless endeavor where I'm helping them recover from drugs, addictions, you know, it could be relationships or just get them in shape. It doesn't matter. Helping them build their businesses, uh, social media, you name it. Right. I help them make their lives better. So to me, it's not even work. It's just stuff that I do. And I I get more fulfilled off just one, one day of helping people yeah. um, in just a minor way when they're struggling from their own vices and put them back onto their path. That's far more rewarding to me than uh, anything I've ever done. Right. It's not hurting anybody. It's helping people. Um, it's just priceless. I mean, I could do this forever. 
I'll do it from a wheelchair. If I lost everything tomorrow and I, all I had was a cell phone, I would still be doing it from a, from a cardboard box. I mean, of course I'd be making YouTube videos, whatever, right. Live streaming that shit from the cardboard box. That'd be some great content. Like it's your, it's your, it's your local coach here in the, uh, the homeless box, right. Tax man hit me up and, uh, I didn't have it. So here we are, but I'm still fucking helping you guys. Right. Can't break me. And, and that's exactly the point. That's what resilience is really about. But resilience only comes when you start practicing uh, taking action, when you start uh, uh, creating habits, uh, when you're actually getting clear in your head, which direction do you want to go? Who do you want to be when you grow up? And I think that yeah. is the key thing. Uh, it is. It is. I've lived a life where I always tried to better myself, but I was all over the show. And I tried, oh, I want to do some photography. Cool, do that. Then I want to do a good doctor. And I want to do this and that and there and there. And I did a little bit there and there. And it's just, you know, I spread myself far too thin. And I had no clue who I wanted to become. Nowadays, I have got a very clear, a clear idea. And that idea was initially a dream. And then I, I thought about this dream so hard and long and clear and made it crystal clear how every aspect is supposed to be like that I that that became the dream became a vision. And then I put action into place and now it becomes a mission. And I right. love that. It's taking action. And that's what you are all about, Clinton. It is. Yeah. It is. It's 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 the way forward. And you. And it's so important to add the discipline to that because it's all quite cool when you're infused. Yeah, it's the new year, <laughs> January. Of course, I do it all. And That's yeah, bullshit. Exactly. It's quite easy. That's hype. That's the hype, man. That's the ego. Bullshit. That's the ego. So I live every day like it's my last day. Mm. Right. And you mentioned action. So in our society, um, we don't have a knowledge problem. You, anybody, has access to all the knowledge on the entire globe with just a quick click of the keyboard and enter on Google, hmm. right? So we don't have a knowledge problem. Everybody, there's a lot of fucking smart people that aren't doing shit. Correct. Right? You have an inaction problem. They're not doing shit. So you'll see exactly. people they'll read books like my. I get a lot of people. Right. And they love to gain knowledge because it makes them feel smart and empowered, but they don't apply it. They're not executing Correct. the action. Yeah. I mean, some of the books can make you, I mean, Grant Cardone has a book, you know, you, the list goes on and on and on about how to become wealthy. Yeah. Right. If you just applied the shit in the book, you wouldn't do fucking worse. Right. You would do better. But mm -hmm. people just get so on a, on a knowledge loop. They want to be the smartest person at the table. Instead of owning the fucking table, mm, exactly. right? So, yep. agreed. So we have an inaction problem. Yeah, you need to be a little bit smart to do these things. But there's plenty of smart people that have no success. There's plenty of smart people that go nowhere, mm. right? You need to do the work, right? So the easiest way is just to take action, right? Correct. Take action, move in the same direction that you know you want to go, right? Mm. Take your flashlight, turn it into a laser. So stop focusing on all the bullshit in life giving your energy nice. to the girl that doesn't matter that you know you don't want to marry, giving your energy away to your friends, giving your energy away to your anger, giving your energy away to nice. the bottle, the vices. Nice. It doesn't matter. When you quit all that shit and you get physically fit, 
It gives you more energy to go longer. And now you just funnel all that energy that you're wasting in a dozen places mm. into one singular task. You know, you look at certain cultures that have really dominated discipline. We'll just take one. The one, the first one that comes to mind is Japanese culture. Mm. The Japanese culture didn't make fucking whiskey. Didn't exist. They also didn't invent the car, right? They also didn't invent the computer, right? You're starting to see a trend here, right? The Japanese took whiskey, scotch whiskey, some shit that's made in Scotland, <laughs> mastered it, and now they make the best scotch on the fucking planet. Discipline, <laughs> hyper-focused. All they wanted to do was understand the craft, and yeah. they figured out a way to make it better and better and better. They do that with everything. They made a better car. The Toyota decimated the American car car industry. It's because it was better. Their, yeah. uh, their reliabilities, their processes, all those, their engineering standards were so much better than the American car. Mm. They just couldn't compete with the Toyota. They literally could not compete with Toyota. It was better in every measurable way, right? And you see that consistently with their culture because they're hyper-focused on being really good at whatever it is that they decide they're going to fucking do. So if it's making soy or if it's making sushi or if it's making a house or if it's making a car, if it's making whiskey, whatever culturally they put their mind to, they just try to be the absolute best at that thing, right? When that's what focus does. When you focus, turn your flashlight, has the same energy and you put it into a laser beam, all those photons going in the right direction, it starts to slice through things, right? So if you take action, you work hard, you'll start to slice through those roadblocks in your life, right? You get a mentor, you get some guidance from from bigger and better people, you start to be really unstoppable, right? It doesn't take hard. It is not that difficult to be a 10% person. It's really not. It's really hard to get out of your social circle, your friends, your family. They're going to look at you like you're fucking funny, mm. right? Like, why are you measuring your food, dude? Why are you getting up early? Why are you, why are you studying? It's, exactly. it's 8 p.m. and you're still working on your own business. Yeah. Like, like I got a lot of cycles. The people I follow say they, they work three shifts in a day, right? They, their first shifts from 6 to noon. That's their first job, right? Because most people only work six hours a day. The other two, they're fucking off with lunch, playing on their phone, talking, whatever. <laughs> right? That's the That'd truth. True. Yeah. That's the whole Absolutely. hard truth. They might do five hours of solid work, yeah. and only two of them, they're in flow, right? Yeah. The second shift is from noon to 6 p.m., and then the third shift is from 6 to midnight. Yeah. They're only getting a five hours of sleep, get up, go to the yeah. gym, whatever, yeah. right? And they do that seven days a week. In Correct. three years, they've reached mastery level on that skill. You can't even catch them. Right. They've just passed you up. You might have been working seven years longer than them, and they just passed you up in two years. Right. Skill wise. Right. And they don't quit. Right. So it works. I can take anybody and teach them how to be the best in their family and pass up their their social circle relatively quickly because their social circle is taking every possible opportunity to not focus right? As soon as they get off work, they don't do any more work. They're hitting the bottle, right? They're going to chase those vices of attention and dopamine hits. We replace that with positive action and alignment with their purpose, the person they truly want to be. And everything they do is about that. Mm. Now you're doing lifetimes of work in several years, five years, 10 years. In 10 years, there isn't anybody that can touch you. You're at the the pinnacle of the industry you chose, Mm. right? Period. 
period. It takes 10,000 hours to be reach mastery level. In 10 years, you've hit it three times, mm. right? You have three lifetimes of mastery level skill development, right? You just pick marketing, sales, and I don't fucking know whatever else mm. that exactly. you feel like doing. And now you're running a business at mastery level in 10 years. And it's just time. It's time under skill development. That's it. It's There's no secret sauce. You don't need to be bigger, badder than anybody else. You don't need to be any smarter. You just simply need more practice at failing than they have. And you will eventually get better, right? No muscle grows true. unless you fail it. No, no person grows unless they fail. I failed so many fucking times, guys. So many fucking times. I failed in the worst way, right? I left a good chunk of the drama out of my life purposefully, but I failed in ways that, you know, could have had me in jail, easily had me in jail for, you know, seven, 10 years, right? I failed in a combat, right? You got to make decisions. People die. I failed over and over again, but if you play it safe, you won't go very far. You've got to be willing to put it all on the line. That pretty girl's walking down the fucking street, right? You see the girl of your dreams. Could be Angelina Jolie. Doesn't matter. Jessica Biel, Kate Bessingale. It doesn't matter. You pick your man or your woman of your dreams. If they're walking down that street, you could be their man or woman of their dreams, right? If you say nothing, you fail 100% of the time. <laughs> Correct. But if you go put it all Correct. on the line, just park your fucking ego for a minute mm. and say, look. Absolutely. She could say yes, or he could say yes. You just go up, say, hey, I think you're an amazing. I'd love to grab a coffee sometime, get to know you. I was looking for a thousand excuses to come over here and say hello. I couldn't find one, so I just walked up. Right. And what's the worst she could say? It's like, no one has ever said that to me. You're my guy. Or she could laugh in your face. Who fucking knows? But no, if you never try, you're going to, you're never going to go anywhere. Right. And I just learned over time that I'm trying to fail as fast as possible. I, I realized that I missed nice. my, nice. my fullest potential. So young, I was held, I held myself back for so long. I cut those chains. I just cut those chains and I'm trying to hit my limit all day, every day. When I hit that pillow, I don't even have to sleep. I'm so excited to get to the next day. I am so excited every single day to wake up to the next day. Like I don't even want to sleep. Like sleep is used to be my calling. I, I no longer truly want to sleep. I just want to keep going. <laughs> I really wish that you could turn me into a robot, you know, get that Elon Musk, you know, I'll get him on the phone one of these days. Like, Elon, where's this fucking chip, man? Plug uh, me into that robot. Uh, I just uh, want to go 24 hours a day, keep uh, plugging uh, lithium batteries into my ass or something. Uh, let me go forever. Like, that's what I want. That's what you want. But then again, no, 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 no. The body because won't do it, obviously. Absolutely, absolutely. It obviously won't do it. There's a limit, right? Yeah. But I mean, I get plenty of rest. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm in a, I'm in a purposeful state of caloric deficit. I'm in a purpose, purposeful yeah. state of sleep depravity um, on purpose, right? Because that's when you operate. I, I feel you're operating kind of in that enlightened zone, right? Monks would fast, Right. Jesus would fast, right. you know, in Islam, there's fasting, right? You're right. In the, 
have your body in alignment with its caloric intake and its actions of positivity. These are all very higher purpose, mm. you know, karma ish, you know, alliance, spiritual alignment things there. Sure. I believe these, these commonalities and, and, and all our, um, old teachings, right? These are old teachings, regardless of what theology, these are social instructions. There's a reason why thousands of years ago, they're in these books, right? Somewhere along the way, we we may have forgotten why they were truly there, or maybe it's just too simple to believe. But when you do, when you live a life that's right. very in line with that spiritual component of mind, body, spirit, Right, congruency or alignment. It's amazing how much better your world gets continually. And maybe there's a higher power that's pulling all the strings. And if you hit the magic keynotes, it just works out. But if you give more, you will always get more. Right. The life's world, the world's a mirror, right? When you hold up the mirror, you get what you are. Right. So if you're a a horrible person and you're giving out pain and hurt. Well, what's returned to you is really just your own energy. It's a reflection, right? So when you're good yep. and you're giving out good energy and you're doing good things in the world and you're selfless, well, it's so odd is the world returns back what you're, what you've been giving, right? If you want love, give love and you'll get it back right? You want success, you give success, you work hard, and you'll you'll get those returns back, right? It's, it's, it's a very simple equation. We just somehow overcomplicate it continually thinking that there's a shortcut that we know better. It's not that complicated. Uh, when, when I reduced all the complexity in my life, my life got better in every way. You know, I bought that car of my dreams. I'm dating the woman of my dreams, right? I live in the city of my dreams. I, I have the body of my dreams. Like so many things are coming to life because I'm hyper-focused in my actions. I'm giving out good things to the world and I'm getting back good. Now there's no perfect day, right? Does, it doesn't mean I walk on water. It's just, you know, there's tough days where there's things that didn't work out the way I planned for them to work out. It's fine, right? And that's why we do hard things. So when that call comes, that unexpected call of adversity comes in, you can handle it without missing a beat, right? Mm -hmm. When that person uh, uh, that you care about or what your older parent, you get that call at three in the morning where they're not waking up, right? You can still have emotional strength, the physical capacity to kind of execute your adult responsibilities and get through things um, instead of just entirely shutting down. If you're exposed exactly. to exactly yeah, you're so right, no man. adversity, yeah. if you have limited yeah. adversity, right? In the Western world, everything's hypersensitive, very easy. Boy, hmm. if... Uh, if something's not right on the sports channel, someone's whole day's fucked up. You know what I mean? That's how, that's how, you know, codified our culture has become. Right. And I'm, I'm the, the counter to that. I'm, I'm teaching people to introduce as much adversity as they possibly can sustain every single day so that when that house catches on fire, right? They can grab their family, and get the fuck out of the house, Indeed. right? It's just a house. They have what's most important to them, the irreplaceable things, and they can start over. They're fully confident that there was nothing in that house that they needed to save other than the people in it, right? And it's no big deal, 
right? They wouldn't even watch it burn. They'll just head right over to the the hotel, grab the hotel, mm. call the insurance company in the morning, say, get me a new fucking house. Mm. I've been paying you for a decade, right? <laughs> Make it happen, right? We're staying here. Mm. Uh, we're going to get an Airbnb in this place, write that check, thank you, mm. and move on with their life. And they'll be back at the gym the day after that, yeah. right? Those are the kind of people I'm building. Right, not a person that stubs their toe and ruins their whole fucking day. They're gonna be an asshole to everyone around them. No, we're not doing that. That's so petty. Think, true, 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 true. But it is, it is so a little, little bit of action every day. A little every bit of that side, indeed. And every moment you have got a choice. You can choose either to work on your relapse or on your sobriety. You can work on becoming the better version of yourself, or maybe just stay stagnant. Every single thing you do is all about choice. And we forget yeah. that we have got this privilege, that privilege that of choice, the privilege of taking action. Sure. And it is so beautiful. It's it's very refreshing to listen to you, man, uh, because it is actually, <laughs> this is exactly how I think about my life. This is exactly why I more and more come to a point where I don't suffer fools lightly. When you waste my time, you very quickly fall away to the wayside uh, because I have got, I've got a life to live. I want to live We're fucking gone places. Intentional, exactly. <laughs> the inten intentionality of right. my life now is so beautiful. So guys, you've heard it all here. I mean, Clinton has not holding back any any anything. It was perfect. It was lovely to to call a spade a spade. Yes, we have sworn a few few times here. Okay, this will this for sure will not be monetized on YouTube. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? This is about honesty, transparency, authenticity, integrity, right. getting, being the man you want to be, being the girl, the woman you want to be, uh, the person, the human being you want to be. Uh, it's, it's just, guys, there are ways forward. Listen to us. Listen to the passion in our voices. This is not made up. We are not on any kind of weird woo-woo drugs. No, we are living our life, and therefore, it is so fucking gorgeous. Okay, that's 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 what I want to do. That's how I wanted to to end my life at one day on my deathbed. I want to say, wow, okay, that was worthwhile living. But it it yeah. takes action, and it takes. If you don't know where to start, you could do far far worse than yeah. You know, looking this guy up here, Clinton die, Clinton. You mainly are on Instagram, aren't you? What's your Instagram handle? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram. Anybody out there that is in a bad place or just wants to chat. Yeah. Send me a message on Instagram. It's at San Diego, like the city underscore Clinton and the number one. So that's San Diego Perfect. underscore Clinton number one. You can find me there anytime. Send a message. And down there, look into the YouTube video, the description or the show notes on podcast where you've got that all in there. Guys. 100%. Oh, Clinton, you're a good man. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> for your time. I really had a good time here. Thank you. I appreciate being on. I'll come back anytime. Thank you. <laughs> and you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.